0: Hey parents, just wanted to give you a heads up before you listen to today's episode that we talk about some adult themes today that really should only be discussed by grown ups. So if you are listening with your kids or have your kids around, I wanted to make sure that they are not within earshot. Thanks and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of creedle I am very excited today to be joined by one of my favorite authors. Uh, I have to say, I only recently discovered cat's work in the past couple years. Uh, but she has become a must read for me with uh, with what she writes, mostly at Unheard. She's an Unheard columnist and co-host of the Feminine Chaos podcast. And she's also a novelist. I recently read her uh, 2021 novel called No One Will Miss Her. And I'm looking forward to diving into that with her today. But Kat, welcome to Creedle.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I'm excited to have you on here. Um, I think one of the one of the good things about the sort of we might call it the sort of substackification of Media Cat is that it allows people to find people like me to find alternative voices who are just writing really interesting things, um, getting away from the sort of New York Times and Wall Street Journals of the world, and finding, uh, finding uh, great young writers who are saying things that um, may not be may not be totally uh, mainstream, but are really worth saying. Uh, and you are, you are definitely one of those for me. I think I'd first found you on Twitter. I don't remember. Probably someone I was following was following you or retweeted you or something. And then I started reading some of the things that you had written at Unheard and some other places um, and just found myself like nodding along in agreement with a lot of the, the things that you were saying and thinking this is someone who's just who's not afraid to be sort of uh, countercultural or at the very least sort of counter to the mainstream. Um, and has a really good way with words, uh, and is not afraid of saying what needs to be said. Uh, so I really appreciate the, the things that you've written. Uh, but tell me more about your Feminine Chaos podcast. I have not listened to the podcast, so what's your what's your aim with that, and what kind of things do you talk about there? I think you're you're one half of it, right? So you're, you're one of the two co-hosts.
1: Yeah, my uh, co-host is actually currently on maternity leave, so I've been holding down the fort by myself, just having guests, um, and you know, it's basically anybody who I who I think might be interesting to talk to. Um, so it's. Uh, Podcast happened sort of by accident. Phoebe, who is my usual co-host, and I used to discuss things on Twitter, and um, it was you know obviously a very fragmented conversation as as Twitter blends itself to. And people started asking us to have a long form chat. Um, so that was I guess in maybe twenty eighteen, and uh, we joined the Blogging Heads network. We had a video podcast on there, and podcasting is not something that I ever really. Uh, planned on doing or had, you know, a lot of like native interest in doing, but um, it, it turns out that it's actually a lot of fun, um, you know, as you were talking about you, the ability to to sort of discuss things in a way that's a little outside the mainstream, maybe a little more nuanced. Um, Podcasting is great for that. Not least because nobody is going to like hate listen to an hour long conversation just to take something out of context to like, to try to ruin your life with. So it's a little safer in that respect. Um, And, you know, it just allows for, you know, to, to speak to somebody to be able to hear their voice and have them hear yours. I think it just, it lends itself to, a better discussion than a lot of what happens online.
0: Now, do you and Phoebe record in the same physical room or have you done the remote recording thing? Cause I find that the first is obviously a lot better to just carry conversation and obviously have like chemistry during discussion. The latter can have some challenges, challenges with that. So what have you found works for you?
1: Uh, well, actually, we've never had the opportunity to record in the same room. Uh, she and I have never met oh, wow. in real life, even though she's, you know, one of my closest friends. So yeah. hopefully, hopefully soon.
0: Yeah, no kidding. That I, I hope so for your sake as well. And, and it'd be cool if you could do an in-person, uh, in-person recording when you do me for the first time, uh, just to experience what that, what that, you know, sort of co-host chemistry is like. Yeah, that would be um, great. Well, let's dive in, Kat, to one of your recent pieces. It was the the one that I read that caught my eye, I think, a month and a half ago or so. And I reached out to you and said, hey, Kat, would love to have you on the podcast to talk about this. Uh, this is one of your pieces uh, relatively recently in Unheard, where you are a columnist, and it's called The Death of Intimacy. Uh, and in diving into this so-called death of intimacy, you also called a sexual famine, uh, you talk about uh, how young people are really unable to achieve intimacy or perhaps even unwilling, uh, maybe maybe more tellingly so unwilling. Uh, you say, for example, in the era, this is all a quote from you, in the era of the algorithm, the personal brand, the Tinder marketplace, perhaps all sex carries a whiff of transaction, whether or not any money changes hands. And in a world where young single people are increasingly taught to be frightened of any threat to their safety, emotional, not just physical, the prospect of true intimacy grows ever distant, ever more possible, ever, ever more impossible. That's um, that's one of one of your contentions in the piece, and I've been thinking about this a lot. I actually prior to reading your piece a couple weeks prior, I think I'd read. Um, Ross Douthit on the sort of death of passion in cinema and he was making a similar a similar argument that we need more sex in the movies more sort of passion in the movies more love stories in the movies because all of the love stories are either uh, sort of like Nicholas Sparks um, style fantasy or they are merely just sort of depictions of transactional uh sexual encounters uh and so i was thinking about that as i was reading your piece as well and you you talk about a lot of these sort of driving factors in this sexual famine as you call it but but let's start there maybe what what do you think in in your view what is driving this this lack of capacity if we can call it that for intimacy among among young people today
1: um, I think it's a combination of things, and you know the transactional nature of things that you were just talking about is interesting. the The reason that I ended up writing that piece was that I attended a talk by um, Ayla. The she's a like a sex worker. She works on OnlyFans, um, and she talked a lot about. You know the like the, the spreadsheet that she keeps that documents all of her encounters, both um, the ones that she has for work and the ones that she has just um, you know for fun, for for her own self, you know her relationships. And it was really interesting to me to think about how you know the the nature of sex right now and the nature of intimacy um, kind of lends itself to that sort of data driven like transactional approach. You know where you yeah you would put it all on a spreadsheet and try to like analyze it and try to make it make sense um, i think that that speaks to a desire um, that is understandable but doesn't actually serve us all that well to try to make our world um safer more organized you know more digestible um, and you're talking about things that are incre- like inherently incredibly messy love and sex and, and physical intimacy um, it's really hard to like plot these out as data points but people want to do it because they've learned to be fearful of having their feelings hurt um there's this sense i think amongst some people that like if they just have enough rules or they just like analyze the data right then they'll be able to kind of hack the entire romantic process in such a way Mm -hmm. that they'll never actually have to open themselves up to having their feelings hurt it's a nice fantasy but it just doesn't work that way and it, it doesn't work Period. So that's part of it. The other thing, of course, is the rise of um, technology as our primary intermediary for communication. A lot of the stuff that used to happen face to face where, you know, there used to be maybe even skin to skin contact. And I don't mean like sexually. I mean, you know, sitting next to somebody at a, at a table and allowing your forearm to brush against theirs or, or smelling their shampoo or just feeling like sort of the, you know, the, the physical presence, the heat and the weight of them next to you these are things that are increasingly absent from um, like courtship which doesn't really exist anymore in the in the sense that people usually talk about it but um, you know young people teenagers particularly are mostly communicating now uh, with the screen in between them and so that entire Um, valence, you know, the physical um, and the the sort of the tension that it builds to be in a physical space with somebody that's all absent. Um, I think that there's something too in the way that technology has has moved us in the direction of trying to make our lives increasingly frictionless, um, which you know feels very convenient, but it makes us less and less able to you know work our sort of like emotional skill set um, to get used to the inherent friction of flirtation, of sparking a relationship with somebody, of being uncertain, and of opening yourself up to you know emotional intimacy or physical intimacy. Um, you know, the more you try to make things smooth and easy, the less practice you get at something that's inherently, you know, exciting, but uncomfortable, um, and you know, and unpredictable. So that was a really long winded, winded answer. <laughs> Sorry.
0: No, no, that's super helpful though. I mean, what I, when I read your piece, and I have read it a couple times, um, once the first time, and then another time last night, just to prepare for our discussion today. Um, what I, what I understood from you was like, look, this is what's happened. And this is how young people are thinking about sexuality and sort of experimenting with their sexuality right now and who's to blame them because of course we've like digitized their entire environment here and we've made it so that they can have these sort of, um, we might call them low risk or no risk sexual interactions all mediated by a screen. So there's no, you know, the, uh, you know, one, one type of risk is something like, you know, something like actually, um biological like um, STDs, but another type of risk is just like the fear of rejection, right? Like there's anytime you go to a bar and you try to uh, try to pick up someone at the bar, there's a fear that you might be rejected. And then there's the the awkward encounter after the rejection in which you have to, you know, collect yourself and pick yourself up and walk away uh, after the rejection. And uh, you just don't have that same thing online, you have like the Tinder environment where you only you only encounter someone if you have both mutually thumbed up and if you message them and they ghost you then okay like there's really no there's no like skin in the game um to pick up on what you were saying about sort of skin to skin contact there's no real skin in the game in the digital world um so who's to blame them do i have that right
1: yeah i mean that's certainly that's certainly part of it um the the sense of us owing something to each other and the way that you might have to be considerate of a person's feelings if they're approaching you in public and you have to see their face as you say, you know, no, thank you. I don't want to date you. Um, I think that there is something inherent, you know, it, it, it makes us much more conscious of just being just being good to each other, you know, it's not about being afraid to say no. It's about being considerate with your no. Um, you know, understanding that this person has risked something by approaching you. You know, you you talk about this from the perspective of you know having to kind of work up the nerve to approach somebody, and that's a huge deal. And I think that it's it's gotten really hard um, for young men at this point because there's this sense now that you need to have consent just to approach somebody. I think that's really really messing with people. Um, but on top of that you know there's also the the way that young women respond to to being approached as though it's like a threat or an insult um, as though, you know, it's their job to kind of, to dunk on the person who's made themselves vulnerable by approaching them. Um, I think that's a really ugly impulse and it's something that is Mm -hmm. really encouraged by the way that dynamics play out online, but it's something that we shouldn't be encouraging. Um, It's, it's making everything a lot worse.
0: Yeah, I could not agree with you more on that specific point. Um, what what role do you think pornography and the ubiquity of pornography plays in this sort of sexual famine as well? Uh, I know you mentioned a little bit in your in your article, but it's not primarily about that. But I just think about you know the easy access that so many people have to it, both men and women, and how it um, it idealizes the sexual experience in a way that real life can't possibly replicate. Uh, or it distorts the, you know, in, in the sense that like it, it makes you think that sort of, um, you know, the, that you would expect your sexual partner's body to look a certain way that it, it can't possibly look uh, because all of that is just cosmetic and synthetic or it perverts the sexual experience and makes you think that, you know, deviant sexual behaviors are actually the norm or that's what's expected or that's what should be required or that's what you should enjoy or that's what you should do as a as a partner. Um, so to what extent do you think that plays a role in this sexual famine as well?
1: So as I understand it, and I fortunately have not experienced this myself, um, but the ubiquity of pornography, and particularly when it comes to being a formative influence on young men who are like, you know, this may be the first sex that they ever encounter is like hardcore internet porn, um, that it's definitely shaping their expectations of what sex is supposed to be and what they're supposed to want, how they're supposed to behave in ways that are really not good for anyone. Apparently, it's very ubiquitous now, um, you know, for for young women who are dating to find themselves being choked during a sexual encounter without consent. Um, and, you know, I think the problem is that pornography makes it seem like this is a thing that women like and want and, you know, and want automatically. Um, I. I don't really know what the solution is to that. Uh, I've seen it suggested, and I don't think it's a bad idea that you know, moving forward, sex education in schools needs to include a "porn is not real" segment um, that you know addresses whatever kind of bonkers expectations people might be developing as a result of being exposed to porn, you know, too early or you know, to the exclusion of other uh, types of, of sexual yeah. encounters. Sorry, I've got a dog. Dog wanting Morris. to wanting to bark behind me. He's kind of revving up.
0: I um, hear. <laughs> I hear the revving. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, and you know, I mean, the other thing too is that the ubiquity of internet pornography came around at the same time as um, feminism kind of embraced this like sex positive valence, where you know rather than being you know, uh, a kind of a default, no, uh, sexually young women were now told that they should be like basically up for anything. And, you know, and that if they weren't, um, that was a bad thing because it meant that they were like not liberated or they were prude or they were like afraid of physical intimacy. Um, And so, you know, to have that being kind of like a, a powerful pressure force for young women at the same time as all of the young men who grew up watching like, you know, anal on the first encounter or, you know, or choking or all of these other things that like, you know, you don't really yeah. want to do the first time that you're ever naked with somebody, Um, you know, For they're sure. coming out like they're coming into the sexual marketplace thinking like, yeah, this is what we're going to do. And you have these young women who are like, I guess this is what we're doing. Like, I don't want to say I don't want to say that I'm not into this. I don't want to seem like I'm, yeah. you know, like I'm a prude. So yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of unhealthy expectations kind of swirling around. And and nevertheless, despite the fact that, you know, porn is everywhere and, you know, and there is less and less stigma attached to sex. People are still very uncomfortable talking about it. So there's sort of this wall of silence in between the sex people are having and then the sex that they actually want. That's not being crossed. And it probably.
0: Yeah, no, you're you're hundred percent correct. Um, on my view of things, at least, um, I think one interesting dynamic that we should maybe talk about, uh, as a final, maybe a final discussion point on this specific, um, uh, this specific issue is the, the collision of this, uh, this sort of formative role that pornography plays in the role in the lives of especially young men and the, uh, the, the Me Too movement and women's empowerment, because it's just, it just strikes me that we've, we've we've arrived at this very incoherent clash of ideas, and you mentioned this in your piece briefly, where on the one hand, we have men who have been formed by pornography and have these completely unrealistic, uh, and I would go so far as to say dehumanizing expectations for sexual encounters, and on the other hand... We have uh, women who, as you say, you know, after me too, are are afraid to let their guard down for even a single moment, and so you have this, um, you have this sort of uh, inability to be vulnerable on the one hand, and then you have like a desire to, uh, to to abuse um, abuse vulnerability on the other hand, and so we've arrived at this sort of like, you know, when you pose it that way, it sounds like a very intractable problem, uh, and I don't know where we go from there but i'm wondering if you if you agree even with the way that i've framed the problem um just now
1: yeah i mean that rings mostly true to me i think that it's mainly an issue of trust um and you know it's it's unfortunate to have to say so but the um the lack of let's see this is what i'm looking for um the lack of weight at this point given to you know, forming a relationship with somebody, um, even if it's, you know, just going on a few dates before you have sex with them. Um, Sorry, (laughs) buddy, buddy, you got to take it easy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I don't want you talking about this. I'm uncomfortable. Um, Yeah. You know, that is, is contributing to a lot of these encounters where there's just, like, no basic level of knowledge or trust between the two people who are engaging with each other in, like, the most intimate, literally naked way, um, and, you know, and it's, when you try to suggest, obviously, that maybe, like, things should be different, um, it's seen as, that's seen as prude or it's seen as slut-shaming, um. So yeah, I'm not sure I'm not really sure where I'm going with this. The dog barking kind of uh, kind of made me lose my train of thought. Um but you know, something that I think a lot about is the idea that sex is um you know that if you're ever uncomfortable it means something really bad is happening to you and that's sort of where um the rhetoric has landed at this point as we become very focused on consent and the notion of enthusiastic consent it's like if at any moment you're not a thousand percent like yeah gung-ho into this it means that something really traumatic and really terrible is happening to you um this is the the thing that we've been telling young people and young women particularly for several years now. And I don't think that it's having a good impact on them. It is creating this sense that sex in and of itself is incredibly dangerous, incredibly fraught, not really the kind of thing anybody would ever wanna do for fun. Um, And I think that we're kind of setting young people up to fail if they're coming into like their first sexual experiences Um, you know, with the idea that like, if they're ever uncomfortable, if they ever ever feel, you know, anything less than, than totally confident and enthusiastic about what they're doing, that it means that they're doing it wrong or they're being, you know, they're being assaulted. Um, they're experiencing trauma. It just, you know, I mean, completely apart from, from what might actually happen during a given encounter, like with that mindset, who's going to have a good time? Everyone's just going to be scared and waiting and waiting for something bad to happen.
0: So, yeah. So I guess the question is, where do we go from here? I mean, what's the, what's the solution? I mean, you mentioned, um, you mentioned one possible small way of getting at the pornography problem, which is to include the porn is not real module in sex education. Um, you and I probably differ on this. Uh, I tend to be, uh, I tend to be, you know, I tend to not have a classical liberal position at all when it comes to, um, Pornography, I definitely favor really stringent regulations on pornography, even perhaps even outright banning of it. I'm open to that idea um, because I think it's just so devastatingly dangerous and uh, corrupts people's lives in, in ways that we're only now just beginning to understand after decades of just free flowing pornography and the Internet has magnified it. I'm guessing you don't agree with me on, on that point. But, but like, what is the, what is the solution to this? How do we, uh, how do we get people past the sexual famine and help them have real encounters with each other again?
1: Um, I mean, it would be great if teenagers started dating in person, um, and you know, Obviously, that's partly up to them, but it's also partly up to parents to, you know, take a step back. I think that the ubiquity of helicopter parenting um, and monitoring, you know, monitoring what your kid is doing, you know, I understand that it's well-intended and that it's hard for parents to take a step back, especially when the tools to do this are at their disposal. But um, what's being cultivated is basically an inability to, you know, to make independent decisions, to form organic connections with other kids like or, or you know other young people um I mean it sounds it sounds weird to say but you know I think that teenagers now would really benefit from the experience that a lot of us had you know growing up before cell phones were a thing where like you could disappear together for a few hours like you could go fumble in the backseat of a car somewhere and like you know nobody got hurt. Um, You know, I mean, you might bump your head on like, you know, the (laughs) armrest or whatever. Maybe that's not super pleasant. But, you know, you have these these moments where you're in person with somebody who, you know, like relatively well, Um, you know, there's there's a sense of trust there. Um, There's a sense of of, you know, you're both inexperienced. You're both figuring things out. You're both kind of working your way through something. Um, and, and not trying to retreat behind this technological veil that, yeah, you know, removes some of the danger, but also leaves you inexperienced and naive and unable Mm -hmm. to connect with people.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Um let's uh let's pivot gears just a little bit uh and talk about another recent unheard article this is this is again maybe just more like intractable problems that we don't know how to escape <laughs> from but you have a you have a very i i found a rather entertaining piece uh called aoc is the new trump in which you review uh a recent sort of biography or a collection of biographical essays about aoc so maybe let's start there tell uh tell my listeners what this book is and give it, give us like your 60 second review
1: Oh, gosh. Okay. So this book is, um, it's it's really like anthropologically, it's fascinating that it even exists. Um, it's called Take Up Space, The Unprecedented AOC. And it's released by New York Magazine, which has sort of appointed itself, like the unofficial fanzine for AOC, um, I guess, you know, which is
0: crazy to me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You know, I mean, I, I used to write for New York Magazine's Culture Vertical. Um, they're a very prestigious outlet, like they do really, really good work in a lot of our I think that this is a strange, like angle for them to have decided to claim for themselves. But I don't know; it seems to be working for them. So whatever. Um, so the book is uh, a short biography, uh, you know, about her, um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's rise to power. You know, her her you know kind of upset win where she became a congresswoman. Um, she ousted first uh, like a long time. Democrat, like a more moderate Democrat from her district um, in the primaries. And then she and then she won the election very handily. Um, so half of that is a biography. And then the other half is essays reflecting on basically everything about her. Um, you know, they're talking about her beauty, talking about, um, you know, her social media usage, talking about her boyfriend, talking about her Hispanic heritage, um, you know, all of this stuff. And it's really like I said, it's a, it's a real interesting book. Um, there is like a, in the very, very center of it, this two page, full color, extremely close up, extremely high definition spread that's just her open mouth with her signature red lipstick on it. Um, like weirdest center fold ever. <laughs> it's like if you had an oratory yeah. fetish, this book is for you. Um
0: I think you might have did you post a picture of that on Twitter. I did, I oh, posted a picture did. of okay. it.
1: I was like, this is so bizarre. And
0: <laughs> Yeah. I saw it and I was like, that is that is the strangest midfold senate yeah that I've ever seen in a biography. That's a that's an interesting editorial choice.
1: Yeah. And you know I think the thing is, you know, it the, this book really it says something fascinating about the culture and about what role politicians currently play in it. You know, um Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez has is a great example of what happens when you have somebody who has more influence than power and is kind of leaning into that. I was surprised to learn when I started um you know researching the background on her to write my book review that she's actually not very effective thus far at getting any legislation passed. Um so most of like the most visible stuff, the most impactful stuff she's done is stirring up shit. Well, oh, can I say shit on your podcast? Sorry. Yeah,
0: no, sure. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I stirring up stuff um <laughs> online. <laughs> and um you know, that is at this point its own form of currency, maybe even like a, a greater and more impactful form of currency so, socially and culturally than, than just like working to do your job as a Congresswoman. Um, so, you know, I think the book itself just, it says something about where we are right now. Um, I'm sort of like, I'm open-minded on, uh AOC herself, like, I'm not a super fan. I don't like the way she conducts herself online. I think it's really distasteful for the same reasons I found Trump very distasteful. But, you know, I mean, she has a long career ahead of her. She may do one thing or another, like she may become an incredibly powerful figure in politics, or she may just kind of, you know, decide to go off and, and actually be a legit influencer and, and make her mark that way, um, which I, you know, I don't really care either way. But I think the fact that this book exists, that somebody felt compelled to make this when she's been in office for like two years um, and it's, there's already just this like, cult of personality around her, it's really, really interesting. And it's maybe worth reading to, to understand that alone.
0: Yeah, I, you, your review, maybe you want to pick up a copy just to just to understand that a little bit more. But I mentioned that this was just a slight pivot from our previous topic on the sexual famine. And I, I think it is only a slight pivot because there's there's something there's a, there's a linkage between these two things. And that's that uh, both of these ideas, the, the sort of the, the AOC possibility, even the Trump possibility is only possible because of our sort of digital first age where performance matters much more than substance and i think politics has always been performative you know you go back to the the great uh oratory debates of the late 19th century between various senators uh in the halls of the capitol building uh you know people being hit by canes i think there was a cane attack in the u.s senate at one point like politics has always had this very performative element uh but i think previously uh part of the performance was in fact the substance And now i don't think that's the case anymore i think uh, it's the case that trump uh can perform very effectively on twitter for his base and do almost nothing or do things badly from a policy standpoint while in office and the same is true of someone like aoc as you mentioned one of the least effective congressmen if you measure how effectively she um gets legislation passed or passes even a single piece of legislation but certainly the most well-known congresswoman in the entire country and someone who has millions and millions of people following her across uh you know TikTok Instagram and Twitter uh and and has a, f- a huge following because of that so she has a lot of influence despite actually doing nothing uh and I think that's because of this this like sort of digital persona uh that she has built up enabled by this age in which everyone has a digital persona and we almost prefer that type of interaction so It's not a problem that she's not an effective congresswoman and doesn't actually craft policy and doesn't actually um, doesn't actually perhaps advance the needs of her district from a policy or legislative uh, through through a policy or legislative lens because she's doing the performance that we we really care about. And that's why the New York mag uh, thought it fitting to create this book length tribute to her. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, the rebuttal that I've heard to that is, well, she's moving the needle on the discourse. You know, she's shifting the Overton window and she's shifting the party's um, priorities in such a way that, you know, it's becoming more progressive, um, you know, more socialist, et cetera. and, And that's a good thing. I'm not persuaded that she actually is managing to do that. Like, I think she's making a lot of waves on social media, but I think, you know, the fact that she's so kind of vehemently refuses to play well with others um, means that, you know, her impact on the party is certainly a mixed bag. Um, I wouldn't say that it's entirely positive.
0: Yeah, that completely makes sense. Um, do you think that this is the future of American politics? We're just going to have, you know, because 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 up and comers see this, the, the success that AOC has had. And by success I mean the the social following that she's had. Um and we'll likely try to replicate that. Uh and even older wise and politicians, and I, I mean wise is not wise, uh, but even wise into politicians even see what she's done and or what Trump did and think like, oh, maybe that's the maybe that's the play now. Uh we need to focus less less on substance and more on performance.
1: Yeah. And it's very sad. I mean I think I think this is basically you know this is probably trump's legacy um you know mm-hmm. you know in terms of the thing that that's going to be most impactful moving forward is that he basically made it okay to like dial your rhetoric intellectually down to the level of like jeering on the playground while the class bully gives the class weirdo a wedgie. And this is where we are now. Like this is how we talk to each other and engage with each other. It's how we expect our leaders, you know, to, to behave because it's fun to watch even if it is like tearing the country to shreds. So, um, and, and given the instant gratification of the Twitter dunk and of cheering for your side politically, like it's a team sport, I just don't think that there's any going back. I think that we're just going to get more and more fragmented and more fractured and more at each other's throats. Um, unless people are willing to like just channel all of that energy into watching actual sports, that would be great. Like baseball season starting up, maybe.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Today's opening day. I'm a huge baseball fan. I definitely encourage people to watch more sports and less like cable news. That would be a really, a really positive development for humanity, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine?
0: It'd be fantastic. Uh, let's let's talk about something more positive, because rather than just complaining about these intractable problems that we don't have solutions for, let's talk about your your book, Kat. Uh, this is not your first novel, right? This is just your third Fourth. novel.
1: Yeah. Uh my fourth third combo, my okay. third solo, um, and my fourth counting the collaboration that I did with Stan Lee before he passed away. So
0: Got it, got it. Uh, well, tell us, uh, tell us about no one will miss her. And then we can, we can talk about just a little bit of like my experience reading it because it it was, it was a really good book and I, I greatly enjoyed it and would love to learn more about your process, but first tell us about the book.
1: Thanks. Um, so the first thing I have to say is that I can't talk a whole lot about the book because, um, if I get too in depth into the plot, I will inevitably spoil something that should not be spoiled, but, um, maybe just
0: give us like the, give us like the opening, uh, yeah, I don't know. Give us, give us the lead basically. Like what's the, what's the setup?
1: So the book opens on a, a beautiful fall morning in rural Copper Falls, Maine. Um, the town junkyard is on fire. And in a lovely Airbnb rental by the lake, uh, a woman named Lizzie willette who rented out the lake house, uh, is dead on the bedroom floor. Um, and she is it's not a spoiler to say she's dead because she tells you she is on the very first page. Um, you know, the, the book opens with her perspective from beyond the grave and then Lizzie's husband is missing. Um, so, of course, that's automatically suspicious. And the book follows both Lizzie's telling you her story, um, you know, how she came to be dead in this house that she owned Um and then there's also chapters from the detective who's investigating the case and chapters from a woman named Adrian Richards, who lives in Boston a few hours to the south um, and who is connected to Lizzie's life and death in ways that I cannot talk about because they would be spoilers.
0: Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about the, the process. And let me just like say from my, my perspective reading it, start of the book. I was like, this is, this is a well-told story. This is well-written. I'm enjoying this yarn. It's not like exciting. And then it gets really exciting because there's a massive twist that I, <laughs> I completely did not see coming and was just, it was just like delightful when it happened. It was like, Oh my goodness, this, this book just jumped up like 10 notches as far as uh, level of engagement. It's super, super interesting. Um, let's start with like the writing process. So you've written four novels now, uh, three solo, uh, uh, it's it's something that I've wanted to do for a long time, but have not had the time to sit down and, and plan out in detail a novel. I've several novel ideas that maybe one day will materialize. But uh, what's the process look like for you?
1: Um, so this was an idea that I'd actually had at this point. It must have been six years ago, and I really I cooked on it for a long time because I felt that it was very promising, and I wanted, excuse me, I wanted to do it right if I was going to make it into a book um so i spent a lot of time just kind of letting it simmer and Mm -hmm. then um the actual writing process um i like to make a plot map which is less formal than an outline but more um more organized than like just writing by the seat of your pants um in this case i knew what the big twist was going to be. And so I had to build from there. And, um, because of where the twist comes in the story, it is about halfway through, um, I needed to construct it. It's sort of like, um, you know, leading your reader into a labyrinth with, you know, this secret hidden at the center. Um, so the journey into the labyrinth, has to be interesting in its own right um it also has to obscure the you know the monster hidden at the center Mm -hmm. so that they don't you know they don't know they might know that there's something there but not what it is Um, you don't want them to catch too many glimpses of it but you want it to be possible if you have somebody who's who reads a lot of thrillers to to maybe guess beforehand so that when they get there, you know, and they find out what the twist is, they don't feel as though you've cheated. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's a real, it's a real fine line to walk um, in in writing a thriller. You know, people will get upset if you've included no hints. Um, They will also, you know, they'll also get upset if you like, give it away too early or, you know, they they like the being able to figure it out themselves, but not too quickly. Um, But then, you know, the so the journey into the labyrinth needs to be interesting in its own right. People need to be excited about what's happening on the page so they're not just thinking about what's coming. Um, And then after you arrive at the center, um, they need to then exit you know, like hand in hand with the monster that you've created. Um, And that also has to be interesting and satisfying in its own right. So it's, you know, it's a very long winded metaphor to describe basically creating something that has a lot of twists and turns that obscures the secret hidden at the center and then allows you to resolve it in a satisfying way.
0: That's really interesting that the goal is to make it not too hard to guess because I would always previous prior to to talking to you, I would assume the goal is to make it so no one can guess. And it's just everyone's super surprised by the twist, but it makes sense that you want the dedicated thriller readers to not feel like you cheated, to be able to see like the logical uh, sequence that might lead to the twist so that they can maybe guess it with like 50, 50 accuracy or something like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people who read a lot in this genre, like they get good at guessing. Um, you know, I did yeah. encounter a number of people who were like, well, I guess the twist right off the bat. And it's like, well, wow. Cool. I hope you still had fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: I clearly have a lot more uh, thrillers to read to get to that point because I it totally caught me out of the blue. I didn't honestly I like I try not to read too many reviews of books that I want to read because I don't want it to sort of spoil details of the plot or mm-hmm. twists for me. And so I didn't even know there was a giant twist halfway through and I wasn't prepared for it. It happened. I was like, Oh my goodness. How did I not see that? But yeah, I definitely, definitely did not see it at all.
1: Oh, that's very gratifying to hear (laughs)
0: how, uh, how long does the writing process actually take for you? It probably depends on the book, but for this one, how long did it take?
1: see, I, you know, I, I had no deadline with this. I was just, you know, I was working on it and I was going to be done whenever I was done. So, um, I guess it probably took me a year and a half or two years to write. Um, and you know, I, obviously I have other work that I am doing at the time. Um, you know, I was, I was freelance writing. I have a, another job teaching yoga here in the community where I live. So, you know, I was staying relatively busy. Um, then I, I did recently write another book and that one just took me, uh, I want to say six months. So, you know, wow. it, it depends. It just depends on, on is, that a,
0: is that a fiction work? Yes. Is that someone's that coming out soon?
1: Yeah. It hasn't been announced yet
0: but, um, (laughs) okay. All right. Fair enough. We'll just, we'll, we'll, we'll wait for that.
1: Yeah. I'm not allowed to talk about it yet, but soon.
0: (laughs) That's totally fair. All right, cool. Uh, can you say the genre or not even that? Oh yeah. It's another mystery. Okay. All right. That's exciting. Uh, well for this one, no one will miss her. Uh, where can people buy the book? Do you have a favorite? I mean, Amazon, obviously, but I'm, I'm kind of anti, I'm actually, I'm very anti Amazon. So I try to steer people away when I can uh, I use bookshop.org. But do you have a favorite like indie bookseller that you like to point people towards to sell your book? Or is it just wherever books are sold? No, I mean,
1: bookshop.org is a great one. Indiebound is a great one. Indie is a great one. Um, you know, you can get it anywhere that you would buy a book. There is also an audio version, which I've heard is very well done. Um, I know that the uh, the voice actors that they chose were really spectacular so uh
0: oh so is it was like dramatized there's different different actors for the different voices um
1: diff- for the different perspective chapters yeah they have a different yeah, actor wow. for for um you know for the for the detective for lizzie's chapters and then for adrian richard's chapters so
0: cool yeah Nate. okay uh yeah well i'll include links to all of those in the show notes for my listeners um parting uh parting question for you kat uh, you're a writer, you spend a lot of time online, uh, and you tend to uh, you tend to value alternative opinions and have a lot of your own alternative opinions. So where do you consume your news? This is something that I'm, I'm always on the on the lookout for like interesting new podcasts, interesting websites, uh, you know, the the unheards of the world where I can find sort of heterodox or um, heterodox, but interesting and compelling opinions. So what what are your some of your recommendations for like go to resources for how to understand what's going on?
1: Um, so for news analysis and media criticism, I really like the fifth column and I like blocked and reported, um, for one-on-one interviews with interesting people, Megan Dom's the unspeakable podcast. Uh, these are all podcasts that I'm talking about. Um, and then, you know, I, I found that listening to sort of multiple takes on the same stories is the best way to get to the truth. Um, I also, at this point, I pull from my experience as a writer, um, you know, I know when I've worked with an outlet, if I was subject to, like, rigorous fact checking, or Mm. if I was being pushed hard by an editor to, like, lean in one particular direction or insert some kind of narrative into a piece. So that really factors in, you know, if, if I had an experience where I wrote for somebody and, like, I was being pushed hard to, like, put a spin on it. Um, I trust that outlet less automatically. Um, but I mean also like as a, as a media person, um, unfortunately I've become much, much more skeptical of basically everything I read. I spend a lot of time reading between the lines to see what's not being said. Um, and I will tend to read the same story from, from multiple sources to try and understand like, you know, what the complete picture is. Um, That said, for for outlets that cover things, I think very fairly, Um, I think New York magazine is still pretty good. Um, minus
0: the AOC biography, the
1: AOC biography. <laughs> um, you know but I mean that that in and of itself is like you know that just tells you something about the culture we're living in um, the New York Times yeah. their street reporting that's, that's not necessarily opinion based um, can still be quite good the Atlantic I think can still be quite good and um, Reason the magazine the libertarian magazine is mm-hmm. quite good um, so those are my those are my recommendations
0: Nice. Yeah. I will include links to all those, including the podcast and the show notes as well. Um, and uh cat just wanted to say thanks for joining the show today. I really appreciate you. I mean, just a, a random person on Twitter. That was me reaching out to you and saying, Hey, could you come on the podcast talk about this? And you were, you were up for it. So I really appreciate you, uh, taking the time to do that it's my pleasure. Uh, to my listeners. If you want to follow cat and I definitely recommend you do if you, if you're, I mean, if you're not on Twitter, don't get on Twitter, but if you're on Twitter, <laughs> yeah, no, you don't, Kat. don't do it. Cat <laughs> <laughs> is at, uh, at cat Rosenfield. Uh, And definitely, definitely one of the best follows, I think, that's out there. So just lots of interesting stuff you can keep with all her writing and stay tuned. uh, It sounds like for the announcement of her next book, which is that announcement going to come soon or is that uh, months away, Kat?
1: Should be really soon.
0: Okay, cool. I'll I'll stay tuned and and all my listeners should too, at Kat Rosenfield. Uh, Kat, thanks so much for joining and to my listeners. God bless you.